Welcome to the Guardian Mindset Podcast presented by attorney Eric Daigle. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the next edition of Guardian Mindset Podcast. And uh, I'm going through the OG list, as you can see. And the next one up is the OG himself. And that would be uh, Mr. Kevin Dillon. Uh, you know, Kevin, I've been friends forever. And uh, I'll tell you what, if you uh, if you listen to some of the podcasts and, you know, some of that very technical speaking and different. Uh, one thing about Kevin you know, I, I am speaking to Kevin Dillon. So if you hear other people like <laughs> former presidents or other sounds that Kevin makes to keep himself entertained, you know, that it is the master Kevin. Kevin, how are you, sir? I'm great, but very good. I'm thrilled master. to be here. Very good. Very good. Very good. All right, Kevin, just for, uh, for the audience and to have you back a little bit of background for yourself. I know uh, the worst thing about this, we all hate talking about ourselves. So uh, can you give everybody a little background about, your career as it how it got here sure i was uh hired as kind of as a baby cop i was a year out of high school i was uh always training with a with a guy named carl thomas who was a green beret vietnam vet but he was a, a police officer too that's when i started to uh train with him and i started to ride with him and, and when i was in high school i knew all i wanted to do was wear blue so when i graduated 19 never mind uh within a year i was on the job now, at the time, it's funny because you could be a cop here in this state for 18 or 19, but you couldn't buy bullets till you're 21. So I'd actually had to go to store with mom. I did too, believe it or not. Yeah, right? I, I couldn't buy my first gun. <laughs> I had to have somebody buy it for me and she give it to me because I was under the age of 21. Mom would go, what do you want, baby? You want those plus P hollow points over there? <laughs> yeah, grab the plus Ps. So, and I, it was a, a, a Weathersfield PD. It was good because being right on the border of Harford, it gave us a good diversity of training. It gave a good diversity of the town to work in and a good activity. We regionalized with a lot of things. In 2000, I wrote the curriculum for the uh, state of Connecticut called Lockup. And Lockup is a, it's a combative arrest control program designed for law enforcement. It's, I've been a martial arts my whole life. I said, but you just can't take the, you know, a martial art and say the word police after it and think it applies to cops. And that's still the deficit we have today. So I wrote that in 06. I'm sorry, 2000, and um, I retired in about 06, and, uh, and I've been on the road ever since. Like, yeah, and grinding on the road, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, years, one thing everybody should know is I try to stay far away from Kevin because if you watch any of his videos, with Kevin, you know, we have a 21-foot rule with Kevin, meaning that we're just afraid to become a victim. Like, I actually saw this morning as you walked into the office, like, even Sean had voyaged you. Like everybody, people, he wore his good sneakers today just so he can run quickly away from you because uh, nobody wants to be any of KD's, uh, uh, you know, uh, tools or demos. Demos, there you go. <laughs> um, I'm going to also give you a, uh, a website to check out, and that is uh, uh, Kevin's website as, it, as you were going to go through it. So you want to check it out and look at it is uh, policecombat.com, and I think I got that right because there it is, policecombat.com, and you'll see a lot of uh, his training programs. And and so let's just break it up. So you took lockup on the road, and, and this is an interesting part because I want to get into this a little bit, but you have a bunch of courses, and I want to talk about some of the key to them. But the key to lockup is that as I go across the country, um, there are many different theories and processes for training defensive tactics. Correct. And one of the things that's becoming a more challenge, especially for the listeners that are paying attention to the podcast, is that where we used to go, you know, we're old school, right? And Kevin, you want me to learn something? Take me to the take me to the mat room and you teach it to me. And outside of the mat room, unless you were involved in a, a, a martial arts application, you didn't add to that skill set at all. You would go to street survival school and they'd take the gun away from you and dismantle it. And you're like, oh, crap, I better go to training again, right? And, yeah. But nowadays, the world of defensive tactics training has so changed because you can watch YouTube videos. You can, you can watch people who have just opinions that are not valuable or not backed up. And that's one of the key parts that I'm seeing in the big change is that Officers need to understand that their skill sets have to come from something that is time-tested and mother-approved. Oh, yeah. 
explain how that industry has changed and, and the challenges you're faced with. You must see this with the young ones coming into your classrooms. Well, see, let's take a look in Minnesota. If you don't believe they're going to analyze that technique to its pinpoint accuracy, watch the trial. They had the lesson plan up there. They had the instructors up there. You know, I was in an agency not too long ago. I'm like, um, that's a pretty good move there, but where'd you learn that? Uh, on uh, YouTube. I'm like, you shit. I am, you're kidding me, right? I said, you're going to swear it's okay. okay. I said, you're going to use something like that. I said, have you ever heard of a quantum of force? Have you ever heard a reasonable foreseeable or a medical possible foreseeable injury? I said, by that, that move, by the way, can break your neck. Well, no, sir, yes. I said, say, for example, I slip back. See, in law enforcement, you perform in an unstable environment. It could be wet. It could be blood on the floor. It could be snow. It could be sand. So you're, if you slip with that move, bah, the neck is going to go. I said, so that is an unintentional uh, action, but it's foreseeable. I said, so don't just take anything off of YouTube without having medically tested or reviewed by doctors. What is the foreseeable injuries that could occur by that? Or uh, a legal application, you know, because, well, we do this. I said, that's a deadly force, man. Not that it's a problem, but you better have a deadly force encounter to be able to do that type of stuff. But you're right. They don't. They just, in, they don't quantify anything. I'm like, well, that's, we do really good here. I said, you do. I said, what's your position? I'm the lead DT instructor. That's fantastic. How long have you been that DT instructor? Uh, seven years. I said, wow, you must be very proficient. I am. So I pick his manual up and just simply flip to a page. How many times has this technique ever been deployed by your officers effectively? Oh, I don't know. Okay. How about time this one? Uh, I don't know. How many times have you ever really been in a position like this? Well, I don't know. I said, how the hell did he tell me so damn good? And I do that with them, not to bust their chops a little bit, but that's what an attorney's going to do, right? That's what you, and that's the key part that I want to talk about is, you know, I love, I, I, I love my DT instructors. I keep them close. I hug them. But there's one thing that has got to change in this industry. And is that DT instructors, everybody loves DT instructors. Everybody loves firearms instructors. But the world is changing to the point now where, where they are actually the evidence, right? Yeah. And the fact that in an IA investigation, I'm going to teach my IA investigators to go to the DT instructor and say, hey, let's watch a video. Uh, did you teach him how to do that? Yeah. yeah. Oh. No, this is, this is for years, DT instructors had the benefit of just being the cool guys and gals, just going out and doing whatever they wanted to. But now we're getting down to the fact that somebody is going to come around, whether it's in a workman's comp issue yeah, or whether it's in a liability or litigation issue or an IA issue. And we're going to start or oh, we have been holding DT instructors accountable where we say, where did you learn this? How'd you learn to teach it? How did you teach it? And did he use it correctly? Right. Right. And, 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 and that's some of the developments in, in this DT application. Uh, for you, one of the things I'd love, and it's, you know, I guess the sad part is when you and I are talking about something, we've been around for 30, 40-ish years looking at it. Uh, the, 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 the training has changed. Would you agree? Like, you know, the world of workman's comp and liability has changed DT instruction, uh, at least from, I'm on the outside looking in, so you're the expert, but I look at the academies nowadays. Um, it's almost a perfect storm. We have officers that have never been in a fight in their life, never been punched in the face. Now they go to the academy, and just 30 years ago, I was boxing in the academy, yeah. and I'm not some badass fighting in high school. I went to Catholic school. Where most fights occur. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, but, you know, at least 30 years ago, we did, uh, we did, more realistic based training, boxing, bull in the ring, uh, you know, fighting in fighting for long periods of time to learn exhaustion. And then we've now changed, right? Would you agree with that? Like things that the liability has limited a lot of these issues. There's a lot of changes that, uh, um, I don't think we've progressed very far. I think we're still on a hamster wheel. Is because even in like getting back to quantification, even the academies. So you guys, have you ever done a follow-up survey within a year, two years, three years? Have the training that we have provided you been retainable for you? Have you done these maneuvers successfully? 
or we do things. I get it, the boxing and things of that nature. You know, one guy goes, you know, because of you, Lieutenant, we don't box at the academy anymore. I said, really? I said, weren't you the same guy that told me that five cops got suspended for punching people in the face? Well, yeah. Weren't you also the same guy that says you're actually considering punch, face punching or the administration is considering a face punch deadly force? Well, yeah. I said, what's your discipline, by the way? Oh, I'm a Golden Globe boxer. Oh, shocking. I said, if you t I understand the principles of trying to create a realistic physical encounter, but how are you going to measure the physiological amount of, or I'm sorry, the amount of kinetic energy being dispersed in a person's head? Where don't they? Well, I said, what's the number one issue you have in, in, uh, in the NFL? Concussion issues. I said, so you have to, I, there's a balance between teaching reality and then just beating it out of somebody that just to show them what it's like to be hit. I said, it's not necessarily proven to be effective for long-term retention. I said, there are ways to do it. I said, but the pr problem is we're either still old school or now it's the complete opposite. Well, you know, we don't like us uh, yelling at the students at the academy. Uh, it should be a gentleman's academy. Katie, would you talk to my dean? Sure, I'll talk to your dean. I said, dean, let me share something with you. When somebody yells and screams at you, correct? I said, you have an innate response to get angry and yell and scream back. It's a hardwired survival mechanism in the brain. That's it. It's trading. That yell and scream at somebody that teach that officer how to maintain some type of homeostasis, how to remain control when your drill instructor or your people are yelling and screaming. All right, at you. So, yes, sir, I understand that. Yes, I did screw that up. So it's a, it's a really inoculation measure. But the problem is then we have to phase out to so they now, okay, you've earned that. Then they phase into more uh, maybe adult learning or more uh, communication or just the way we even do with the academy is wrong. And many academies are up to date. But it's not a matter of like, okay, here's the five days of DT. Here's the five days of firearm. I said, no, you should be doing DT at least every other day for two hours, four hours, not once a week because then it's not retainable. So there is a balance between trying to create reality. And then the big push is virtual, virtual, virtual. Virtual is fantastic. But it does not really create the same physiological response. Well, it's not for DT. DT is... is you know, in, in, on the mats, right? I mean, you can learn anything as a structure, but, it, but, but that's the key is like in your world, in the perfect world of KD's life, how do you, how do you, how do you make those mechanisms? How do you make a student profession? Uh, how do you make the mechanism into a, into a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Into something that they automatically done. So you want to develop what's that called that automaticity in the brain, that instill subconscious performance. Well, first of all, like all the research on the rapid skill acquisition is completely opposite to what we do. I, am, I would say something like this. Chief, do me a favor. I'll stick with the eight-hour budget you have a year. That's it. Just give me eight hours just for arrest control defense tax. All right? All right, good. Oh, by the way, I want a two, four-hour. I want two, four separate two-hour blocks. I want two hours in March. I want two hours in June. I want two hours in, in September and two hours in November. Now, then you go to use of force reports and you determine the needs and assessment. So say, for example, if we go to New York or any agency, how many times have you had a two, three officer encounter trying to control one subject? Depending on majority, they're all raised their hand. How many times have you been on your back in a ground fight situation? Nobody raises their hand. So you want to go to the use of force incidents to say, hey, guys, do you realize on uh, probably 59 occasions we had incidents involving two to three officers? This two-hour iteration is going to be two to three officer immediate control tactics. Therefore, you work it, you train it, role-playing it, two hours, you're out the door. Now, it's a matter of the brain retains things when it revisits again. So now you come back two hours late or two months later, and you do that for the first half hour. Revisit it, retrain it. Then, okay. We've reviewed the use of force reports. Do you realize that we're dealing with a 72% failure ratio on the taser? Then you should implement that. Now at least you're identifying deficiencies and then you're developing your curriculum to fit what the deficiencies are. Not generic, let's just do the judo chop. Let's just do this. Why are you just going to do that? And why are you just going to do this? And you said it before in the aspect of are the instructors reviewing the use of force reports to see not only what's occurring in their industry, but maybe even what's nationally occurring in, in issues. I mean, all of these uh, deadly force incidents are online. You can, you know, you have to start becoming more focused on that. Um, as you look at in the leads training, your core training, over the years, 
what has what has changed in the development for that? Well, what's the difference with your lockup training today versus 20, 20, 30 years ago? Okay, uh, well, there's a couple of things. Lockup is law officers combat connects for unarmed uh, panoply, the complete shining array of a guardian, or the complete of the panoply of skills required. That's the physical arrest control program, which we integrated with de-escalation in 2000. It's always been integrated. Now, you mentioned something about the LEADS program, which is the Law Enforcement Active Diffusion Strategies. Let's get back to lockup first, then we can talk about LEADS. Definitely going to touch on the LEADS because of this concept of de-escalation, which has me befuddled. Yeah. Um, what is, we have, my manuals are all binders because they're living documents, which I mean by how many, what, me but myself, if I have techniques that I have no evidence of being deployed, why am I teaching the same stuff? Right. So I rely on the on my students to get back to me to let me go give me some anecdotal evidence. What is working for you? What's not working for you? That's where the problem becomes. Because oh, lieutenant, we did this really good technique. I said, show me the video. I'll take a look at it to see if it's within within the practice. Oh no, the chief won't let me send it to you. That kind of stuff. I'm like, you you know how beneficial it may be to say not only do we review what our officers do. But then we go back to the original trainers to determine if we're, the, we're consistent within the training, within policy. I said, now it shows you're above and beyond. So that's why we're constantly modifying to teach officers. Don't teach what you want to teach. Teach what the officers need to know. Right. Capabilities. We, we use that at NTOA all the time. Train to capabilities. And when you're doing a needs assessment, a training assessment, you know, in the perfect world, we, because one of the, just a, a little side note, I mean, I know you and I hate it. You know, the posts all use this train to hours. Train to hours is the worst possible way you can do it. We, you know, we should be sitting around a table saying, hey, what capabilities do our officers need to have? Yeah. And let's train to the capabilities in its application. Sorry about that. I just yeah. throw that in there. Here's another thing. Talk about what I, I said. We have to teach adaptive thinking under stress. We teach our officers what to do under stress, but we never put them under stress and teach them how to do it. So therefore, we're teaching them in a static environment how to do things, but we need to put their bodies in a physiological change. They have to have oxygen deficit to their brain. They have to have accelerated heartbeat. They have to have obviously oxygenated to, to, to gross motors or fine motor skills. So they have to learn how to be in that deficit to make now decisions, which means breathe, think, what do I want to do to accomplish this particular task? I said, I'll give you an example. The best way to teach decisions for officers is number one, on duty. Have the training officers say, listen, all right, we got a, we got a real house. And uh, all of a sudden, everybody's working, so it's contextual. So they're not just coming in in gym shorts and uh, they're in the same exact outfit. 123 Main Street, uh, uh, you got to have training exercise. They arrive at the training exercise. Okay, everybody strip down those weapons. Take your weapons over here. Safety check. Here's your uh, simunition weapon. Here's your inert spray. Here's your... Uh, communications, handle the call. Now, the parade is significantly designed for facial recognition. I said, so you walk in, it's your own instructor being a bad guy. You're only going to have so much of a reality response. Or you see somebody there with a f red man suit on. Already, you're not going to have a realistic response. Okay, we're going to fight with this guy. You have two people from outside you've never seen before, and they start acting up pure aggression. You're going to have a true physiological response to it. At first, you could say, this, this seems to be real. He, he doesn't have a training. He doesn't have no face gear on. And this guy's coming at you. And he's starting to really create the assessment that, oh, we're going to have to get physical for a second. And right before it gets physical, I'm going to, wait, stop. What are you going to do right now? What, what is your action or plan? Go. So now you're actually teaching how to make decisions while in that, that deficit. That's called adaptive thinking under stress. The majority of the time, we have them do it on a virtual or uh, what would you do in this situation? I would do this. Of course you would do that because right now your brain is full of oxygenated rich blood. Yeah, it makes it your brain safe. Because, yeah. yeah. So we have constantly tried to modify the curriculum to fit what officers, multiple officer control. Think about it. Let's look at the most controversial issues that we've dealt with in the majority have been what? The nylon pig piles, the blue tsunamis, whatever. And it's foreseeable, when, like for example, at the conference, Remember, how many of y'all been in this situation? We talked a big, all their hands go up. And then, of course, how many been in this situation? Hardly any hands go up. Then why, if it's so reasonable, foreseeable, why is this not just a true pattern in practice, like doing a motor vehicle stop? 
We all know how to do a motor vehicle stop. When it's when it's uh, when I'm coming in, the second officer, I should know my role. The third officer, I should know my role. The fourth officer, keep your ass out of it. Start to be the quarterback, assess things. But that should be common sense and common common sense is not common practice because they have to put it to practice. Are, are you noticing? I mean, I'm seeing in, in as the generations change. You know, every generation has its benefits and its detriments, and it's always what challenges us as instructors and investigators is understanding the person, right? What, you know, uh, I use a philosophy that says, you know, these guys aren't you, they're not going to be you, and you're not going to make them you. So if I'm evaluating their use of force, I have to figure out who they are first, right? And one thing I'm noticing a lot of is that under stress, the, the younger generation doesn't have a lot of experience under stress. And where the older generation, you know, we came, a lot of us came from the military, a lot of us served and, and we, we've been involved in stressful situations. And as you know, even time on the job gives you that skill set. Skill. But a brand new officer in today's world with, with the academies are a little more friendlier. Okay? They're less stress inducing. And what is that effect? Do you see in your training classes that the younger officers are having more problems or less problems in stress induced environments? Yes, they are. And here's a couple of issues that we talked about at the summit. I don't think the issue is excessive use of force. I'd say prove that to me. Out of 73 million calls, how many really ever excessive use of force? We had an article you posted on the other day on your app pertaining to, um, was it DOJ did that yep. assessment? Yep. So I think the majority issue is now the failure to engage and hesitancy to engage. Now, the fear factor could be, one, officers never physical in their life. Two, it could be other officers say, screw that, I'm not doing that. Next thing, I'm going to be prosecuted. I'm going to be investigated. So I really think the issue that we're dealing with now is significantly a high level of hesitancy and reluctancy that's going to cause them to get injured. Whoop. And is the hesitancy and reluctancy, uh, do you see that in, in the classroom when you're going hands-on with them? We know we see it on the road. We see it in the body-worn cameras, right? Do you see that in the classroom too? Is there a fear of I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I can do, so I don't know how to do it, or or how does that translate to the classroom environment? You don't want to put them in a situation that their brain doesn't know how to do something. Otherwise, it's almost like uh, you had Bill Lewinsky here before, and all the principles now are adult learning at all is the basic understanding of neurology. So it's almost how are we going to transfer that information that becomes almost myelinated in their brain. And we, in, in the past, have not been doing it that has been conducive. For example, putting them in a hood drill uh, under, under you know, pressure, and they don't know what to do. So I say, you don't put people in a hood drill or any other drill until you've given them skills to address that. The same thing with the, our training. It's okay. It's easy because you show them what to do, what to do, what to do. Then you try to create scenario-based exercises. But... I don't see hesitancy in that area. I don't teach a lot of recruits, though. I don't do recruit training. I only usually teach instructors, so I, don't, I can't really say that I have a lot of experience. Recruit training, I'll come in, slap them around a little bit, nice class picture, hug them, boom, out. Yeah, and uh, so I teach the instructors. Yes, the yes, majority of the times. Um, you're, well, you're, the good part about that is teaching instructors, they're... We used to call them bitch sessions, but we'll just call them venting sessions. What are your instructors venting on nowadays? What's the challenges that they're facing as instructors? Yeah, definitely newer generations that I would say is not as uh, kinesthetic, so to speak. They're not physical. Uh, they're very analytical. Um, what I'm getting from the instructors, so bear with me, this is just their opinions, is that there's not a, a lot of drive. The majority of them don't have that hardcore drive to really want to continue to learn. They almost do what they need to do to get the objective done. And they don't really see the value of it, which is tough. You got a young guy or gal who's never had any physical altercations. They've never seen it. So they don't understand how valuable it is to have that training before they get into it. So that's what I think. And so now it's a matter of trying to create realistic and dynamic training at the same time. Like uh, two officers got reassigned out of an academy the other day, not too long ago. I won't say the state or the city because they yelled at the recruits and they got reassigned. And that's what's going on in the academies. It's, and of course, 
yell and scream at them. Next thing you know, they're rolling over. They're hazing me. They're hazing me. Now, there's a significant difference between hazing you and inoculating you with some type of stress. And then who you have overseeing that? People that really don't understand the true principles. Well, one of the things we can transition to, and you've done a great job with uh, uh, this, yeah, with your leads class, and I think it's uh, one of your most uh, effective uh, class four experienced officers to understand. And I'll let you explain a little bit, but, you know, the concept of de-escalation has become such a, an automatic in our world. You know, everybody, you know, that's criticizing us. Did you de-escalate? Are we de-escalating? Is this de-escalation? And, you know, um, the concept of de-escalation has been a hot topic for me, as you know, because it's such misinterpreted that we, that we have this special pixie dust that we carry around with people and, you know, that we, we can fix anybody, right? We're a police officer, anybody we interact with. So tell us a little bit about your LEADS training. The LEADS program we wrote in 2006. And way before all this big in vogue thing came about de-escalation. And cops have been de-escalating since time began. Right. We know that. Do we need training? And of course you do. I mean, body language is innate. We all have the same body language. Communication is a highly trained activity, especially with these new young guys and girls that pick up that smartphone and with their thumb, give you a whole paragraph that, with a happy face and a brown emoji, LOL, out the door. But when it comes to interpersonal communication, they don't, they don't really have it. They need to understand that principle. So we wrote it. And I'm like, guys, you've been de-escalating since time began. The problem is, like you just said, it became this unbelievable misconception when you have Congress release millions of dollars in de-escalation training or uh, somebody saying you should shoot people in the leg, that stupid, ridiculous, moronic stuff. But the problem is, I have, my problem is, where is our high-level law enforcement entities disputing all that? They're, for, they're not there. They're not there. In a, where they, let the, they let the narrative run. And, and that's the, there's only a handful of us that continue. We can't do it by ourselves. No. Because we don't have the, I mean, where is groups, IACP, NSA, where they, where they come out and say, could we stop misusing a word? Like, it, just because it's a word doesn't mean it's the end-all, be-all. But you could watch any TV show, any news story about a use of force, and so, the guy who doesn't even know how to spell de-escalation is going to use the word de-escalation. Right. And it's almost like CSIism now. You know, you got a jury thinking like, well, everybody has to de-escalate. You can certainly de-escalate. That's all they hear. They don't know the realistic application. Now, I had the IACP call me a couple of years ago. God love them. Hi, Lieutenant. You know, your leads program is approved by the DOJ. How'd you do that? I said, well, it wasn't difficult. See, it was approved only because I need to teach agencies that are under federal consent decrees. And therefore, my curriculum has to be submitted to them before teaching the officers. Well, we're looking to do evidence-based evidence-based research pertaining to de-escalation. I'm like, you got to be kidding. I said, do you think maybe you should start something a little bit more tangible, maybe like use of force, to show how often, what are we doing? Are we proficient? Are we effective? How many injuries really occur? How many times is it really excessive? That is something tangible that you can measure. How are you going to measure a de-escalation? Hey, man, I don't want to throw hands with you. I'll kick your ass. I know you do, man, but I don't want to fight with you. Do you understand? we got to figure this out. And all of a sudden, my partner comes walking in behind me. Now he sees two of us. Oh, forget this, man. And he turns around. Is that the escalation? I said, of course it is. I said, so now, how are you going to measure that? Are you going to uh, measure all the complaints filed in 2020, implement the training, and then measure them again in 2021 to determine the outcome? Oh, yeah. I said, what about self-initiated activity? I said, is that stopping use of force? Is that a de-escalation when they're not doing it? Or the new statute said you can't pull this one over because unless of this. I said, so you're going to take your de-escalation and create victory and not even take all these other equations into it. I said, when it comes down to it, cops have been de-escalating. Our weakness is the lack of the uh, documentation like this. Oh, there's a suspect right there. Hold on, man. Right there is fine. I immediately kept myself 25 feet from the subject, comma. Knowing that the individual just violently assaulted his wife, I try to mean this is a 25 key. That way I can start to discuss him without trying to use force on the subject. That way I stalled for backup, period. I walked into the living room. The subject was extremely agitated. I immediately placed myself between him and a coffee table. By having a coffee table between the two of us would give me more little time and distance to try to de-escalate the situation. Comma, I did A, B, and C. 
I said, uh, if you don't write what you did, you're not going to be able to testify in it. Officer, according to the report, you say you uh, de-escalated the situation. Yeah. What technique do you use? We saw that you obtained leads in 2019. What technique do you use? You know it. Well, I, I attempted to redirect the thought process. Objection. Your Honor, there's not one word about this alleged relocation or de-escalation. So we got to learn to put all that, what we do, in those reports. So now when you read the report, say, not my officer. Yes, he attempted the escalation. Yes, she did it. She, first of all, keep herself at a tactical distance. Number two, then she put a barrier between the two of us. Then she tried to, A, she tried to do this. All the, I said, at least now you have plenty of documentation to say what you did. Because we know it, that you can't de-escalate everything. And when it's not de-escalated, they blame the cop, not the person responsible for their own actions. And one of the key areas that I would just say to the listeners to pay attention to is one of the things that I've been focused on is, is do you even have a definition of that word in your use of force policy, right? Right. Every use of force policy should have a definition of de-escalation because, again, words undefined, the, the meaning can be interpreted and applied by anyone who wants to apply a meaning. It, it can, it's got to start within your own agency to address those issues and in, in understanding in the aspects of de-escalation that, just like you said, you know, this is not a miracle. Uh, this is, we don't carry pixie dust, right? Uh, now you talk about in your, in your leads class, you talk about uh, the, uh, the understanding um, or learning the use of cognitive, cognitive limitations for active diffusion. What do you, what do you mean by that? First, we, I'm going to say, the, I'll say, listen, you are not going to tell a jury why well, I attempted to uh, redirect the oxygenated blood from their limbic system up to their prefrontal cortex. That's still Kevin, by the way. Gosh, I didn't notice that. I said, <laughs> you're going to use terms like this. I was trained by redirecting their thought to something positive could maybe suppress the anger. Come. I was trained by giving them tactical deception. Okay, would you be okay to drive in 10 minutes? Could possibly suppress the immediate need to use force. Because obviously when we do become agitated, we do have the relocation of oxygenated blood. And one of the first things to leave is our cognitive thought process. That's why, you know, we just, I don't know if anybody else, but that's why I say stupid stuff to my spouse. Because, you know, like, what are you thinking? I don't know. Well, about every male that walks yeah. the face of the earth? Our brain often leaves, our blood flow that's oxygenated often, often leaves our brain. So I just teach them the basic principles. I said, I don't go too deep in the weeds. I'm not talking about the hippocampus, the thalamus, the amygdala, the prefrontal, the parietal. We're just talking, hey, guys, let's talk about two basic emotions, all right, your limbic brain or your forefront brain. I said, you need to be operational. You have to learn to breathe and think and how to process that because when it comes to de-escalation, there's only one person you can control, and that's you. All these other techniques are designed to influence all their behavior. Even simple stuff, do you realize, like, hey, no, no. No, man, you can't do that. That just secreted a little neurochemical called cortisol out of your brain. I said, so even the words that we use can have an emotional impact on people. So we just teach them to understand how to maintain your own. I said, listen, anger management isn't 101. I said, it's normal to get angry at people yelling and screaming at you. I said, the politicians expect you to be Spock and have someone yelling and scream at you, and you're supposed to say, well, I understand your perception on that. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to allow you to passage here. It's just crazy. Uh, but we do teach them that. The other thing about leads, and this is what I want you guys to pay attention. Start to quantify what you do, even with that. I would say, Chief, do you have the capability in your CAT entry to give me a 10 which would say conflict resolve, no use of force, no criminal arrest? Well, sure. I said, how many times do our officers go to issues like that? Our Motel 6, arguments between 101 and 102. All right, 101, why are you yelling and screaming? Because they started banging on the walls. All right, how are we going to resolve this? Well, if they stop banging on the walls, okay, is are you guys okay with that? I'm going to talk to them. You go to 102. Folks, let's resolve this. You going to bang on these walls anymore? No, but the game was too loud, so we told them to turn it down. We're sorry, officer. We really didn't mean this. All right, so we're all settled here. You guys are going to do this. You guys are going to do that. Everybody happy? Yeah. 17, give me a 10-8. That's... Uh, Conflict resolved, no use of force, no criminal arrest. Now, say, for example, you have an incident. You see an officer come right up and bang, he's got to take a suspect down. And you only have one perception of it. You're going to have every craptivist, I'm sorry, activist out there and everybody else there yelling and screaming about, oh, this is perfect evidence how these officers don't know how to de-escalate. You want to give your executive that. 
Uh, Lieutenant, would you pull up the data pertaining to conflict resolved? How many have we resolved within the last six months? Conflict resolved with no use of force, no criminal arrest, 735. Do you see? My officers have resolved 700. We have to start to quantify even that because if they're going to pass millions of dollars for training in Congress or they're going to create the illusions in juries, we should have some measure to start to quantify what we do even with the escalation. I, it, and it amazes me how inconsistent we are in this application. I mean, you all, we all know police executives across the country that are right on this. They're, they're 100% all in. They figured it out. They get it. And then we have other departments where it's never even crossed their mind. And, and you know, I even I'll give it to you on a national level. In 2015, when the FBI opened up the database for use of force tracking, and, and I had some involvement in assisting to, to guide that, I've been trying to get that. I mean, we're at like 32% of the 17,000 agencies participate in the use of force database. You know, if we had that data, we could control the narrative, but we don't want to do the extra work to give us the data to, to call it what it is. If it comes out bad, it comes out bad. If it comes out good, which we know it's going to because of the use of force to arrest ratio is so limited in this country, and it's even more now that officers feel like there's so much under scrutiny, um, that, that that data would be there and valuable. So I, I kudos for you to continue pushing that, that quantifying that application. I know you teach that at the Use of Force Summit in, in more and more detail. Um, and so um, is is the Leeds class one of your most uh, most active classes right now? I would say lock up at fifty percent, leads is fifty percent, but then we have uh, we have a series like if a uh, female overcoming size difference for female officers, we have use of force analysis for uh, leaders, and again, this is a different perspective on like why are you teaching your officers, how you select in that curriculum, how do you measure the performance, that type of stuff. Those are tr those are lock up leads, uh, force analysis. The triple handcuffing OC, the basic principles too. So it's really quite a handful. It's really booked. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I'd like to touch on the just for a second because uh, you know, not something that I've studied at all, but definitely interested in with the increase in in female officers over the last decade, half a decade. Um, you know, the the size issues. I mean, this this is still combat, and and. These issues are real issues. It's not, you know, you know. Unfortunately, uh, some some male aggressors will treat a female differently. Some will not. Uh, what are the main issues if we had a female uh, uh, officer who's you know, slight in size, slight in weight? You know, what are, what is the best advice that you can give uh, to female officers who have to overcome that size difference in its application? Females or males make no no. Make no, what I say, understand this, size makes a difference. The vehicle with the most lug nuts will win. So therefore, you can't square up and go pile for pile with them. You have to use deception. You have to use your, your gray matter. You have to almost like don't think you can say you're under arrest and square up with them because you're not going to win. None of us would win. A quick example. I'm in Paris one time, right, and I'm teaching, and they say, Kevin, you must take down Peric. They want to see how good I am. I said, that big guy over there? Yes, he's a world champion boxer. I said, you want me to take him down? Okay, yeah, I'll take him down. So then I said to number one, I said, Jeff, see that guy over there? I guess he's a the big guy. Yeah, I guess he's a world champion boxer. I said, all right, I want you to go in front of him, create that selective attention. Give him a little shove saying, I thought you were so good. You're not too good at this. I'll do the rest. So when he's so focused on Jeff, I come right behind him. Wow. Take him down. Boom. Then I do this. Au revoir. Au revoir. And we all run away, right? And he gets up. He goes, what happened? I said to the class, did you really expect me to stand in front of him and fight his game? I said, it's all about deception. I said, it's about if I have to physically arrest the control, that's why taking your concept about creating consensual use of force is so powerful too. Say, listen, we don't want to use force against you. Do you understand that? I'm begging you. Come out. Figure this out. Screw you. What do you want to do? Now we put him on that notice, correct? Now you start strategizing. If I have to take this guy, I'm going to take him when he's not ready. Immediate control, because our skeletons are all the same. Our muscle mass is different. 
But if I'm if I'm talking to you here and somebody comes right behind you, that gives them the leverage to overcome somebody quicker when they're not ready for it. So it's really about strategies and deception when you're dealing size differential. Now, let's let's deal with something that we see all the time, and it amazes me how mis misinformed the world is. But normal use of force that we'll see in any situation, corrections, police officers, you got that 110 pounds sweaty guy. Uh, and, uh, and there's five, six officers trying to take this guy into custody. And one, and I get this all the time in my expert cases, in my analysis. Well, you, he's only 110 pounds. Uh, well, you had six officers. You, and, and when I try to explain to people how difficult one person can be to take into custody if they don't want to take into custody, they, uh, it, it, what can you what can you do to talk about that situation where? The perception is that we should be able to just, you know, I'm six foot three, I'm 210 pounds, I should be able to take down that 110 pound, five foot six guy. Why do I need five other officers? And why do I need to put a knee on his back to do it? Why do I need to do all of those things that are smacking? You didn't think I was going to leave, let you get out of here today without dealing with the hot issues, did you? Hey, here we are. That's smack what our issues are today. This is what we started off with. Say, guys, if you have reasonable foreseeable incidents, there's no reason because if all of a sudden we come across that slick-ass guy with either sweaty or whatever, um, if you tell the officer left arm, that officer will get that left arm, right leg. They'll get that right leg. But normally it's so chaotic you don't have anybody doing that. That's why they should, if they know ahead of time. There's no quarterback as you know. No, no quarterback, no plan. It's almost like, all right, nobody you guys are going to remember this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Years ago, growing up as a kid, we had a football game. It was a magnetic game. We would put the football players on the magnetic green platform. Bear with me now, right? <laughs> then you would hit the button, and the magnetic players would just aimlessly go all over the game. We'd clap like hell, get all excited. Oh, my God, that was a good one. And we reset the whole thing up again. That is, Sean's got it upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> that is like us. If you don't have a formalized plan, because unless you have somebody grab that, because I hate to say it, most judges and prosecutors, they're not familiar with really use of force analysis. They're going to be. How could two officers not simply control one person? They don't have any That's what idea. They like. say because it's not real. It's not It's not realistic. They, all they see is what they see is choreographed fight scenes on TV, and that's what they believe in their brain. So it's not realistic. So you have to almost like identify that. And it's up to you to say, unfortunately, trying to control somebody that might be emotionally or agitated states, never mind mentally alterated. They have no pain receptors. Uh, the adrenaline keeps going. I said, you're fighting somebody with significantly more strength than adrenaline. You don't want to hurt them. So that what creates the issue to go higher and higher and higher. All right. So let's, let's bring this all to a wrap. And what is, what I see in my perception in watching use of force incident. I mean, nowadays, uh, every expert witness case I get, and there is all about videos and videos and videos. And a lot of you listening to this are going to agree with the same thing that we, we, when in, because we're in a situation where people are afraid, truly afraid to engage to, I, I, you know, I like that term. They're afraid to dance with fear right now. This job will always have fear. The difference is, can you dance with it or not? Can you go in there and do your job? If you're at a, you're sitting down for lunch right now with a younger officer who is like, Katie, listen, I, I want to do the job. I want to do it the right way. Proactive police work, not a big into it. Uh, I just, I, I didn't take this job to go to jail. I didn't take this job to become a news story, right? And, and, and you're going to say to them like we do, you know, protect yourself, you know, but at the same time. But how do we, how do we move this individual forward? to have the confidence to address the issues with the fact that the fear is a reality. The, the laws, the, the prosecutors, everything that they're facing out there in this time is real. It's not, it's not made up, it's real. But they gotta, they gotta find a way to do the job with the fear. And what advice would you, if I'm looking at you saying, Kev, I wanna be like you, but I'm just afraid that I'm, I'm going to be in the wrong situation at the wrong time and I'm going to end up in jail because of it. I'd say, first of all, 
success is not coincidence. I said, you have to invest in yourself. Don't rely on the departments. Not, no, I'm not bashing the departments, but do not rely on them to develop the knowledge you need. I hate to say it. You need to have, say, for example, your app should be on everybody's phone. You should read these cases. Therefore, you might have a fear is the only thing that differentiates us between the suspects. They don't have fear. You have a lot of fear. You have fear of losing your job. You have fear of getting suspended. You have fear of being arrested. You have fear of getting hurt. These fear factors, they don't have. But you can minimize those fear factors by investing in yourself. Don't just rely on the department to train you. Analyze this case. Read up on the case law so you start to understand. How many officers do we know that they're, they're, they got blanket of fear of litigation? I'm like, I get it all the time. I'm afraid against Right. Do you realize in the world we live in now that we get sued 80,000 times a year? It, it, if you do something, you're going to get sued. Right. That, by, by saying, I'm on scene. You're named. Yeah. It's just, that can't be the fear. Right. It just can't be the fear. And I say, well, I have um, commanders. They said, listen, man, if you're going to keep throwing this blanket of fear on them on litigation, you might want to cite the case. Otherwise, if there's no clearly established case, you were just given a blanket of fear for them for everything. I said, what? I said, you understand what I mean by that? I said, so read the cases. I said, because when the cases you found that to be officers to be unjustified, I know it's not as like yesteryear, but still, punitively, how many times do you ever get punitively? There's almost none. Yeah. Don't shoot dogs. That's probably it. That's closed the hole. But... Right? <laughs> And yet, of course, you can't help it because they're going to bring Fido's picture into the. In per 20 years of litigation, I have never had a punitive case, yeah. and I've only seen like three exactly. thousands and thousands of litigation cases. So, if there's one element, so guys, you can minimize your fear of that element first of being sued. Okay. Start to read these cases. Okay. I, well, the guys did that. Now, know your policies, know what you can do. Know your tactics and start to train the tactics with consistent what you're going to do. Therefore, what, what causes it, 2021, Dara Ross did another typical study that was followed up in two, well, it was 2008 originally. The faster immediate force is used, the less likely injuries occur to suspects or officers. So you should have, okay, to reduce the fear, how am I have to take this guy down? So now that fear factor is if I know the skill level. Now here's another factor. I don't want to hurt the person. Okay. Now you're going to stall and you're going to, next thing you know, that one's almost, that went to a deadly force fight with me because I didn't want to hurt the guy. So they'd have to deal with the fear factors one at a time, at a time, at a time. You got to, you got to, you know, this is the job and the dancing with fear is real in in, in that area. And I don't know, you know, like self-initiate activity. Um, I can understand it because there's such lies and misinformation pertaining to that. And uh, you got to be patient with the community because the community is being fed with all these lies pertaining to uh, racial profiling and all this kind of stuff. There's no evidence with that. There's distorted evidence and distorted research, narrowing it down to only specific areas. And the reality, the reality is, is that uh, you know, with 17,000 departments, 680,000 officers, does does something pop that someone truly did wrong and truly? had ill will and ill intent, it happens. Yes, of course it does. It's like any other profession in this country. So we're not going to sit here and say in any way that this is all lies and made up stuff. Yeah, but but one doesn't speak for the masses. And and the key is, is making sure that you're prepared to deal with your situation. It's coming to a point where you have to control your domain. You have to control your world. I th- and the key thing is you have to, guys, invest in yourself. Again, no, I'm not getting overtime. I'm not going to training. Yeah, they never buried a building, by the way. The only building was buried, I think, in the volcanoes of Pompeii. They bury people. I said, you owe it to your loved ones. You owe it to your children. You owe it to your husband, your wife, or whatever. But you got to invest in yourself, especially if you're going to be in this career. I can't, I mean, uh, this, is, this is something that we've said. And, and talking about the legal updates, I mean, how many times do you and I have conversations about about things that are going on in the world, just uh, just because I, you know, the one thing everybody needs to understand is that, uh, just like all of the, my presenters always say, is that we don't stop learning, we learn every day, and so I want Kevin's perspective from the DT world, I want Bill's perspective from the force or, or Paul Taylor's perspective from the science side. Like this is this is the value of this podcast and value of 
of this. You don't have to agree with everything that's being said, but you have to continue to keep analyzing it. And you have to continue to keep saying, well, where am I in this big picture? What, what do I know? What don't I know about this topic? Exactly. Well, Kevin, as always, uh, I do strongly encourage anybody that has an opportunity to take a leads class. And by the way, um, we are, Kevin is going to do a leads class online in a DLG learning center that you can get access to. So you don't have to travel to it on, on June 12th and 13th of 2023. Uh, you know, if you just want to not have to travel and take a leads class, you can get it on our DLG learning center. And trust me, you will get all the, all of the different voices that he has. We're, we're not sure. We're not sure how we're going to keep him in front of the camera. I mean, that's going to be a Sean problem, but it, but we're going to, Maybe 3D, we have to lock him in somehow, like maybe put up fences around him. But I think it's going to be a very interesting, it'll be Kevin's debut on on online training. And uh, we might have to put a little taser on him, like just give him a little stuns here and there. But it will be very, very beneficial. So check it out on our DLG Learning Center. Uh, on our, uh, You'll see the leads training, which will be an online class on June 12th and June 13th. Kevin, uh, you're a true friend. Uh, I'm humbled and honored to partner with you on many things and and look forward to having you back to the 2023 Use of Force Summit so that you can wake everybody up in the morning and try not to cut yourself with a sword again. That's a, you know. I will do my very best. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate you. The Guardian Mindset Podcast is sponsored by the DLG Learning Center. You can find us at www.dlglearningcenter.com. On the Learning Center, you can find an extensive library of articles, webinars, and online training. Listen, if you find the podcast informative, I'd recommend checking out our weekly Path of the Guardian video training and our monthly supervisory continued education program. These programs can be purchased by single users or department-wide. And if you want easy access to articles and information, please download the Daigle Law Group app through either your Apple App Store or your Google App Store. And remember, help those who need your help, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe.